for those of you, if I had not had a chance to meet you, my name is Mike, uh, student pastor here at Central. And, uh, you know, it's funny when we talk about, um, there's a reason that I'm sitting down here tonight. Um, and and uh, I, think it's, I think it's good to kind of mix it up. Right? I think it's good to mix it up a little bit. Um, and I always, and those of you who've been with me for a little while, you know that I'll probably start sitting down. And it's possible at some point I'll stand up. I don't know. But, um, you know, tonight we are, we're, we are about to, we're going to be uh, studying a passage of Scripture that is um, one of the most widely debated passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. Um, and I want to be very clear about something, that tonight, um, I'll say I haven't struggled so much in as much as preparing the message, right? I feel like the passage is clear. Um, it, it hasn't been much of a struggle in that aspect. I'll tell you that the struggle has been really almost, okay, how do you deliver this in a way to where everyone can understand and at the same time, people don't make assumptions about what I'm saying. They're assuming I'm trying to say something that I'm not saying or, or whatever it may be. And, 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 and honestly, this is a difficult passage. There's verses in Romans 9 that are very difficult for us to understand. And, and honestly, there are many verses in here that will offend most of us in the room. What I mean by that is this, is that there is no chapter in the Bible that I can think of that when properly understood will humble you more than Romans chapter 9. And when it comes to difficult chapters or difficult passages of scripture in general, the temptation for myself, I'm just going to be honest, the temptation is to skip it. That's the temptation, right? This is a hard passage. How, what do we do with this? Um, you know what? I don't want to confuse people. I don't want to offend anybody. So the temptation is to skip it. And uh, Lord knows throughout the day today, uh, Satan has given me several reasons to just skip it. I've, I've woken up from, to people telling me, uh, that they, I probably shouldn't teach it and I've had other people say that they're concerned about hearing it and, and then, uh, then about, an, about an hour and a half before Encounter started all of my notes were deleted and I lost them and uh, I don't have really any notes tonight um, but I will tell you this is that if there's a reason that, if, that Satan does not want us to study a passage of Scripture, understand this, that that is a passage of Scripture that you should run to, not from. That we don't run from passages of Scripture. We don't run from difficult topics. If anything, what we want to do is we want to say, okay, what are the difficult passages? And I want to run to those. Because I will tell you this, is that when Romans 9 is properly understood, I'll tell you that it will, it will humble you but it will magnify your view of who Jesus is. It'll magnify your view of what God has done for you and what God has done for me. Now, I'll say that Romans chapter 9 also is a very, it's a debated passage because it talks about a topic that a lot of people like to debate. In particular, it happens to be a topic that most people get very, very passionate about, and it's a chapter that people who are passionate about this topic will often set up camp in this chapter, and they will use it as a platform from which to argue their doctrinal stance. 
And I want you to know that tonight, my goal is not to teach to you a doctrinal way of thinking. My goal is not to uh, teach you about a certain form of theology. Our goal tonight is to collectively walk through Romans 9 and pull out what is God telling us through his word. Does this make sense? That tonight you're going to hear words like election and and predestination and, and different things like this, but I want us to understand that tonight is not about studying a topic. It is about studying the word of God. You with me? And likewise, I will tell you this, is that there is topics that we're going to talk about tonight that you will probably disagree with me. But I want us to understand something, is that when it comes to, there are things in the Bible that are closed-handed, that we cannot disagree on these fundamental truths, right? Jesus is the Son of God. If you disagree with that, you're not a Christian. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. If you disagree with that, you're not a Christian. Jesus rose again three days later from the dead bodily, and then he walked 40 uh, days and then he, uh, on the earth, and he ascended to be with the Father. If you disagree with that, then you're not a Christian. But what we're going to talk about tonight is some, one of those things that we would call an, a secondary issue. And it means this, is that there are multiple ways to interpret the, you know, what we're going to be talking about tonight. But here's the thing is that whether you agree or disagree, we are still brothers and sisters in Christ. You with me? That tonight is not about arguing. And if that was your goal, if you knew what we were talking about tonight, and you came to argue, I hope, uh, actually, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm disappointing you, but that's not what we're doing. If you want to argue, then you can argue somewhere else. Because Romans chapter 9, really all of Scripture is not meant to be something that the church divides over, but Scripture is what's supposed to unite the church. We are united around the truth of the Word of God. So I want to be clear, if, if, if you have parents or loved ones or whatever, there are people that I greatly respect that interpret this passage differently than I do. There are people that I greatly respect that interpret this passage the same way that I do. Right, but this is an open-handed issue. You with me? And my goal tonight is not to make everyone agree with me. My goal tonight is to faithfully share what I believe the Word of God is teaching. And then what we're going to do afterwards is we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to dismiss you guys to groups. And, and for some of you, if you have questions, what we're going to do is while some go to groups, others, if you want to stay after and you want to ask specific questions, I'm going to stay in here, and we're going to have a time where I can answer you some of your questions. Okay? Because uh, I think that this is a topic that I don't want there to be any confusion on. Make sense? All right, you smell what I'm stepping in? Sweet. All right. Well, I'm glad you asked. All right. Romans chapter 9. Uh, if you've been with us over the past several months, really the whole school year, we've been going through the book of Romans, uh, and we've been really looking at what is God's plan of salvation for us. We saw in the first few chapters that all people are in need of salvation, that all people uh, are sinners by nature, that, they, uh, that the Bible says that no one understands, no one seeks God, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it says that no one seeks God, that we are by nature haters of God. But 
And because, oh, sorry, and because of this, we are due for God's wrath, right? That the wages of sin is death. That we are in law, we are due to receive God's just wrath for our sins. But God, in his grace, in his mercy, has made a way for you and I to be saved. To have our sins forgiven, to have, to have our, our sinful nature gone away with, and we have been made a new creation in Christ. And we receive the blessing of this salvation, the blessing of this new life, and we receive this by faith, not by works. That it's not about what you do or what you have done, but it's all about who Christ is and what he has done on your behalf. And we receive this simply by faith. And we saw in chapter 8, right, what, what does it mean? Man, it means this idea that there's no condemnation and, and that we are heirs in Christ and we have a future glory and no matter what this world throws at us, we have a confidence and a joy and a peace that can't be shaken. And, and then the fact that because of this, man, because of what God has done, that there's nothing that can rip us out of, our, out of his hand, that there's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is just magnificent joy in this and if you were with us last week we kind of introduced this idea of the topic of election if you weren't here I encourage you you can go on uh, our YouTube channel Central Students and you can go on our YouTube channel you can watch the sermon from last week or you can listen to it on podcasts I know it's on Spotify and I think Apple Podcasts I'm not 100% sure is it on Apple Podcasts Josh if he's in here he said yes. Okay, sweet. Yeah, it is. So you can listen to that. Um, so we kind of introduced this idea of election, but really it's important for us to say, all right, we're going to continue on in what he's talking about and into chapter 9. So I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but as the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And, on, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told that the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make one uh, out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if 
God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sons of Israel be of the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But, the, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All right, I'm going to pray real quick. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of Scripture, and God, we ask that as we study this passage tonight, that you would, Father, that you would speak. God, you would prepare our hearts for what it is that you have for us tonight, and that, God, ultimately everything we say and do would bring you honor and glory. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So, fun passage, huh? Right? Very interesting. There's a lot of things in here that raises a lot of questions. Right? And I want you to understand that this is something that, uh, while I do not have necessarily notes, just so you know, like, if you know what my notes typically look like, and you see these notes, you would be, uh, you would understand what I mean by I have no notes, okay? Uh, I have literally, like, three bullet points, and that's it, all right? But so, so, but I will tell you this, while I do not have notes, there's probably no other passage or topic in Scripture that I have spent more hours of my life studying to try and understand, and the reason is this, is because I was, uh, uh, for most of my life, on one end of the spectrum where I felt one way. Then over time, I've found myself on the other end of the spectrum. And the first thing we're going to understand, before we get into all that, we need to understand something this here. Is in the verse 1, it says, Paul talks about this unceasing anguish in his heart. There's this unceasing anguish that Paul has, which is interesting, right? He's talking about this amazing glory and this amazing joy that we have. In the first eight chapters, man, like, there is so much reason to rejoice. Then he opens chapter 9 with this burden that he has. And the first thing we need to understand as Christians is our burden. Why is he sorrowful? Why is he burdened? He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from, the, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He ultimately, see, Paul is a Jew. Paul is a Jew, and, and as a Jew, he has fellow Jews that are openly rejecting Christ as the Messiah, and in so doing, ultimately rejecting God. And, and this breaks Paul's uh, heart. He sees that, man, these are the people, right? The Israelites, the Jews, these are the people who were chosen by God. They, they were, what belongs to them is the adoption, and, and God's glory was first revealed to them, and, and the covenants were given to them, and the giving of the law was to them, and, and worship, and, and, pro, and the promises of all of Scripture were given to them and and man and through their line is gonna come has come the messiah and and all of this and they reject it 
And Paul is heartbroken over this fact. And here's something that you need to know. As a Christian, we are burdened for lost people. We have a desire to see people saved, do we not? We do, we should. I'll be honest, if you don't have a desire to see people saved, you should question if you're a Christian. If you're okay with people, who are, who, people rejecting God and going to hell for all of eternity, if you're okay with that, you need to check something. But how does Paul describe this anguish? He literally says that I would be, if possible, I would give up my salvation so that they could have it. Now, whether Paul actually means this or he's simply speaking in hyperbole, we don't know. But regardless, the fact remains that Paul wants people to be saved. And we do too. This makes sense. I have my beautiful daughter. She is 10 months old. When she was first born, she was just merely hours old, and I remember holding her, and I looked at her, and I told her, I was like, all right, Carly, like, there's this guy named Jesus. I'm going to tell you all about him, you know, and, and I explained to her, I was like, you know, and, and it, this was hard to say because she was literally, I just watched her be born and I was telling her like, you were born a sinner, but th- you know, uh, and, and, uh, and talking to her and, I'm, and obviously like, I know she's not gonna remember this. I know she, has, she doesn't even understand what I'm saying. She's honestly just, she probably feels like, you know, like I go fishing a lot and when a fish gets yanked out of water and it's just like, <gasps> that's probably what she felt like, you know. But I pray that my daughter would grow to know Christ. Every day, Kayla and I will pray individually and then also many times collectively. We pray that God would reveal himself to our daughter and that ultimately she would grow to love Christ. And I think that there's nothing that would break my heart more than the thought of that not being the case. But not only for her, but for many other people that I know and love. People in my family, people who I grew up with, that I, I, I pray that God would save them. And here's the thing that we need to know, guys, is that because we are burdened for the lost, there should be nothing that we are not willing to sacrifice to get the gospel to people who need it. People need the gospel. Like, do you believe this? That if people do not have the gospel, if they do not place their faith in the gospel, they will spend eternity in torment in hell. The people you love. So what should we do? We should pray. And why do I pray? Because I long for people to be saved, but ultimately I lean on the faithfulness of Jesus. I trust in the fact that God is sovereign. I trust in the fact that God is in control, that I can do everything in my power. And I do, as, as, or I try to. But ultimately, it is up to God. And what you're gonna find as you go through in, in, in the book of Romans and much of Paul's writings, but in particular the book of Romans and especially in Romans 9, 10, and 11, is that Paul is going to anticipate responses from people who disagree with him. He's going to say something and then he's going to anticipate what they're going to say in response, so he's then going to answer those rebuttals. 
Which leads us to our second point. We see our burden. The second thing we see is our confidence. Because if, if, if Israel, I mean, these are the people who were chosen by God, are they not? This is God's chosen people, Abraham, living in the land of Ur, and God unconditionally goes to Abraham, calls Abraham, tells him, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And out of this, we have all of the stories of the Old Testament, and we, and we see, man, God has chosen them. He's revealed them to himself to them. He loves them. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, Paul, uh, God says to them, I did not choose you because you were a great nation. I did not choose you because you were wealthy or anything. I chose you because I chose you. But we see here that, what does Paul say? Is that they, despite all of this, they reject Christ. They're lost and they're broken. And here's the question. If God has revealed himself to Israel, given them his word, given them all of these wonderful things, then the question is this. How can I be confident that God will hold me? Because here's what we have, is that we have people who have encountered the word of God in a way that no one else in, on earth have, and they have rejected God. And here is the question that Paul's opponents are going to say. Does this mean that God's word has failed? Has God failed? I mean, he gave himself to these people. Has God failed Israel? And the answer is no, he has not. But, I mean, he's revealed himself to them, and, and most of them reject him, and they, they don't, they, 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 they're not saved. Does that, has God failed? No, that he has not. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In that verse, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, is the verse that is the main point of the rest of the chapter. God does not fail to save God does not fail. There is nothing that God has ever attempted where he was not successful. So he's going to go on. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, well then, then if, he, if, it, if, it, if he hasn't failed, Paul, then explain why, every, why the Jews are not saved. And this is the tension we live with, is it not? Why are not all people saved? This is a question you have to ask. And we talked about last week, we talked about election, and we talked about the fact that God has elected people for salvation, and we talked about we're not going to get into, you know, how that works. We're just going to say it as a fact, because the Bible makes it very, very clear. And I had a bunch of verses tonight, in addition to the ones I read last week, but I lost my notes. But read Matthew 22, John 6, John 10, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, or 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 2. It's all over the place. But this idea that God elects, right? So, so why is it that not all of Israel is saved? Because for not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he is referencing what, what Paul's about to do is Paul's going to take Old Testament Israel, God's chosen people, and hold them up as a sort of case study for us to, to understand his election. Does this make sense? 
God's election of Israel, and he's gonna hold them up as a case study for us to understand what does this election mean. Well, not all who are from Israel, descendant of Israel, and he, he gives this example of Isaac. So if you know the story, God chose Abraham, right? God chose Abraham. He says, Abraham, get up, go to the land that I will show you, and I will make a great nation out of you, and, and, uh, and look up at the stars, and through, uh, count how many stars, and, and, and uh, can you count them? No, you can't, and so shall your offspring be, and, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, and God gives this amazing promise to Abraham, this amazing promise to Abraham, but there's a problem. Abraham is old. I'm not talking like, you know, like how some of you think I'm old or, or how some of you think that Mr. J is old when he's not. I got your back, right? I'm talking this man was dusty, right? The Bible says nearly 100 years old at this time. He's like, uh, that sounds great, God, but how is that going to happen? Like, I, I can't have kids. My wife is, she's, she's old with me. We can't have kids. So if you know the story, what does Abraham do? He takes his wife's servant, Hagar, and he sleeps with Hagar, and he has a, a son through Hagar named Ishmael. We're going to go to Genesis 12. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you're more than welcome. Genesis chapter 12. Let me make sure that I get where I'm going here. Do, do, do. Actually, no, 17. Forgive me. Genesis 17. All right. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, verses 15, you shall not call her by, uh, by Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, so God's talking to her. Uh, God's talking to Abraham, talking about all this stuff. Verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Because God just told him that Sarah is going to have a child. Yes, I know you just had Ishmael, but no, Sarah's going to have a child. And Abraham gets on his face and laughs. Imagine laughing in the face of God. That's not a good idea. But he laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, Abraham says, God, well, look at Ishmael. He's, he's of my line. Right? Romans 9, right? Not everyone who's a child of Abraham. Well, this is a child of Abraham. He's like, man, this is it. But what does God say in response? God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God says, okay, you have two people, both offspring of Abraham. God chooses one and not the other. Why? Right? Why would he do this? Well, Paul's, uh, Paul's going to go on and explain this even further. Right? So Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Basically saying this, that many of the Jews then, they thought that they were saved, they were right with God, simply because they were Jewish. And God, and here's the thing, right? Because we talked about election is a thing. It's undeniable. And here's the thing. Anyone who believes this Bible believes election exists. The question is, what does it mean? How does God elect? 
Because the word election simply means to choose. How does God choose? And that's where the debate is. It's not that God chooses. It's how does he choose? It means the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. This is referring back to Genesis, right? And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived. Ah, so he's going to give another story. He's going to give another instance. And Rebecca has two sons. Bible Jeopardy. What are the name of her two sons? Jacob and Esau. They are twins. Now, Jacob is the oldest because he is born first, but ultimately what you have is you have Jacob and Esau. Now, how does God choose? Ultimately, what Paul is trying to get up across here is that God's election or God's choosing is unconditional. Meaning this, there are no conditions by which God chooses. Meaning this, that it's not that God, you are elect because you have met a certain condition. Which is exactly what he's trying to say, right? Not all who are Israel, just because you're an offspring of Abraham doesn't mean you are chosen by God. It is the children of the promise, God's promise, right? So he's gonna give an example here. He's gonna give an example, he's gonna say, talk about Rebekah, she has two sons, Jacob and Esau. By one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, we, that, that verse, a lot of people get, get tense about. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I mean, understandably so, right? I thought God loves all people. How can God hate somebody? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Well, we, this is where we need to understand something, that the Bible was not written in English. Okay. Now, here's what, remember what I said earlier. Don't jump to conclusions that I haven't said yet. Okay? We're, we're going to walk through this together. The Bible is not written in English. The Bible was written, in, in particular, the story of Jacob and Esau was written in Hebrew. All throughout, the, but here's the thing. We have, what happens is, is that the Bible is translated into English, and it doesn't change the meaning of it, but what it does is that we take, there are connotations that we have with certain English terms, and we apply them to English translations of the Bible, and ultimately what happens is that we are applying a meaning to a text that that is not the meaning. So when we think of hatred, we think of like, almost like active pettiness, that I despise this person, I hate this person. It's an active, I am against. But that is not the case here. We see this all throughout scripture, in particular Jesus, when he says anyone who wants to be my disciple and come after me and be my disciple and does not hate his father, his mother, even his wife, right, all these different things, he is not worthy of being my disciple. Jesus is not saying that you should actively despise your mother and father. Ultimately, what you're seeing here is that there is an aspect where God, Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have loved less. That is what he is saying. Now, here is where, again, we need to be very, very clear. Does God love everyone? And hold on, hold on, don't. I'm going to ask a lot of rhetorical questions tonight. Don't answer them, okay? Just listen. (laughs) 
Does God love everyone? In one sense, yes, he does. Absolutely, yes, he does. God has a general love for all people. Does God love everyone equally? Well, the scriptures would say no. Now, what, Mike, what are you talking about? We talk about, I mean, well, what we see here, Jacob, I have love. There is a special affection God has for Jacob that he does not have for Esau. God has chosen Jacob, and he has not chosen Esau. Now, when we talk about how, what is the means by which God chooses, this is the most common argument people give. Well, God has chosen because he knows who will accept him and who will not. That's the most common argument that people give. And here's the thing, again, I want you to understand that my goal is not to try and teach an opinion. My goal is to try and teach you what I believe the scripture is teaching. Now, while at the same time, it's impossible for me to do that without giving you my opinion on what I think the Bible says. And here's what I want you to understand. The Bible is without error. The Bible is authoritative. My opinion is not. You with me? So there is very likely, I am never going to, never take Pastor Mike said this as equal with Scripture. What you do is you take what I have said, and you take Scripture, and you say, okay, this is the ultimate authority. Right? This is the ultimate authority. Not my feelings, not my emotions, not what my pastor says, what my parents say. It's the Word of God. And we study this, and we hold ourselves to this. But ultimately what people will say this, is that what God chooses or elects because he knows who will accept him and who will reject him. Well, the problem with that is that it doesn't align with what Paul just said. What did Paul just say? That, that our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, talking about Jacob and Esau, they had not even been born. They had done nothing either good or bad. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue, he chose Jacob and not Esau. Ultimately meaning this, God chose Jacob with no regard for anything that they had ever done or ever will do. That God's election in the, in the case of Jacob and Esau had nothing to do with their future outcomes. If you actually read the story of Jacob and Esau, what you'll find is that Jacob was not really any better than Esau was. He was a liar. He deceived his brother into stealing his birthright. He deceived his father into getting the birthright by dressing up and pretending to be Esau. So it wasn't because Jacob merited it, and here is the entire point. Nobody merits salvation. God did not choose anyone because he knew they would do something. God did not choose anyone because they were worthy of it. God's choosing is unconditional and it goes back to his purpose of election. Why? Because it is going back here. That his purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, here's the thing that we need to understand. For many of us, when I say this, that God has chosen particular, a group of people to express his affection and his grace and his mercy and to save them from their sins. And I, and I say that he has done this without any regard for what they have done or what they would do in the future. Many of us think that I have narrowed the scope of salvation. But I think what Paul's doing here is he's actually broadening the scope of salvation. Why? Because what he's saying is this. There is no person that you deem so far from God 
that God can't save. Right? If it's not based on them, if it's not based on anything that they could or would do, it has everything to do with God's sovereign, mysterious wisdom. God can save whomever he wants. Praise the Lord. Right? Praise the Lord. Thank God he didn't save me because he knew what I would do. Charles Spurgeon, who is from his history of the church, many people call the prince of preachers, says this, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for, for reasons unknown to me, for I never could have found in myself why he should have looked upon me with such a special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. See, this does not limit God's salvation. It broadens it. There's no one that, that meets the conditions of salvation, which means that there's no limit to who God can save. There have been people in my life that I, in my mind, thought, man, I'm going to pray for salvation because I love this person, but it is hard for me to possibly th fathom them coming to faith. And I've seen God do miracles. Meaning this, guys, if there are people in your life that you are burdened for, go to the only one who can do something about it. Right? God chooses. God saves. But why are we... But there's a lot of questions that come up with this, right? 2 Peter 3.9, God is... Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. First Timothy, or Second Timothy, is one of the two. If I had my notes, I would have had it. Right? It talks about the, God, the fact that God desires all to come to salvation. God desires for all people to be saved. Ezekiel says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So, Mike, what do you have? What you're saying is not what I believe the Bible teaches, but here's the thing that we have to acknowledge as true, is that there is a, the fact that God desires all people to be saved. This is true. Has God decreed that all people be saved? No, he has not. So what do we do with this? Well, we have to understand there's multiple perceptions of God's will. And I, we could put it to you this way, that there is, there is God's will of decree and God's will of command. You guys with me? I'm hoping that, I'm trying to make this, a, this is, I'm trying to walk through this a certain way, okay? So if you have questions, please feel free to ask uh, afterwards, right? God's will of command and God's will of decree. Here's what I mean by that. There is things that God's will that he has made evident to us, right? So God's will, is it God's will that people murder? No, right? It's not. It is not God's will that people murder. Right? So God's will is that people do not murder. Has Now here's what we need to understand. If you want to understand this tension between God's decreed will and God's commanded will, look at the cross. Because we've just said that it is not God's will for people to murder. But here's the question you have to ask. Was it God's will for Jesus to be murdered on the cross? This is a good question, is it not? Does God will for murder? Absolutely not. But what do we see? Scripture says, Isaiah 53, that it pleased the Lord to, it was, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
that Jesus was handed over according to the predetermined will of God, Acts 4. So in one sense, no, it was not God's will, but in another sense, it absolutely was. What do you have? God's will of command was no, but God had decreed it would take place. Now here's the question. How can God decree that sin take place without being guilty of sin? That's a great question. This is where we get down to this understanding of something. You have to understand that as a sinful person, just how radically sinful you are. This is an illustration that's not unique to me, but it's the best illustration I've ever heard on it. I love the movie The Lord of the Rings, or the movies, The Lord of the Rings movies. And in The Lord of the Rings, there is these creatures called the orcs, and, and you get orcs, and then uh, after that you get the Urukai, which were made by Saruman, the evil white wizard, and, and these Urukai are, are made out of the dirt evil. They're evil from the start. They are from their conception evil, and you have Aragon and Legolas and Gimli, and they're going through, and they're just whacking these dudes, right? They are just slaughtering these Urukai, and every time they kill one, what do you do? Yeah. Why? Because they're evil. And here's the problem. You don't think people are. People are evil. I, apart from Christ, am wickedly sinful. Please understand, guys, God owes salvation to nobody. He owes salvation to none of us because this is the next question. Verse 14, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? That God would choose some and not others? That doesn't seem fair, God. And that comes from the perspective of thinking that God owes salvation to all people. But he doesn't. The only thing that you and I deserve is wrath. And this goes back to in, in earlier in Romans where he, where he says that God said to Moses that I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, right? He, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is going back to Moses in the Exodus. When Moses is on top of Mount Sinai and he's receiving revelation from God, what is going on at the bottom of Mount Sinai? Anybody know? Sorry, I mentioned the rhetorical question thing, and you guys are obeying perfectly. Uh, okay, what? They made a golden calf. Moses has been gone for like four seconds, and they're just like, yo, Aaron, make us a god to worship. That's literally what they said. And if, if I was Aaron, I would want to just, I say this, but I probably would be just as dumb as Aaron was. But in, in my mind, I, I, did you not pay attention to anything? But what do they do? They, they worship this golden calf. They worship this pagan idol. And Moses is on top of the mountain. And what does, God says, I'm about to just wipe these people out. He tells Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. They have totally disregarded me. They've totally rejected my covenant. They have totally done all this. You know what? I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to preserve you and I'm going to fulfill my promise to Abraham through you. And he would be totally just to do so, would he not? But Moses intercedes. He prays and he says, God, don't do it. 
Now, ultimately, we know that God doesn't change his mind. But what we see is that God, that through prayer, Moses intercedes for the people, and God says, okay, I will spare them, but I will destroy 3,000 of them. Now, granted, there's like well over a million of them. Now, don't get me wrong, 3,000 is a lot, but you hear what I'm trying to say. Here's the question. 3,000 people killed for their sins. The rest of them spared. Here's the question. Did God do anything unjust to those 3,000? No, he did not. Then what spared the rest of them? Strictly his mercy. That he chose to be merciful. Did they deserve it? No. Were they just as deserving of destruction as the 3,000? Yes. But God in his sovereign wisdom, chooses to be merciful towards whom he chooses to be merciful. See, God is not unjust, as it says here. Is, is, is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion. People are not saved because they choose. What does Jesus say in John 15? He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John 6, what does he say? He says that no one comes to, the fa- comes to me unless the Father draws him to me. Over and over again, this idea that, that man does not choose God, God chooses man. And he gives them a desire that they do not naturally have. Why? Because sinful man, as Romans says, that hates God. Think about this. The more man who hates God, the more God reveals himself to that man, the more that man will hate God. See, God has to do something supernatural to that man. To think that I would choose God is to deny the fact that I am wickedly sinful, as Scripture says. It's to credit myself with a righteousness that the Bible does not credit me with. God is merciful, and we are truly evil. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. And he talks about this idea of Pharaoh, and that Pharaoh, God raised up Pharaoh simply to demonstrate his power. Now, here's what I want us to understand. You can disagree with me on this. That's totally fine. You have that right. But here's what Paul's about to say something. And if you're going to disagree with me, don't let it be because of this reason. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault, right? This response, okay, well, if God has elected, then why does God have find fault? It's like, it's like, it's like judging a man, it's like judging a blind man because he can't read. Right, that doesn't make sense. Why would God do that? For who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? And that's the point, verse, 20, uh, verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of uh, the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one vessel for dishonorable use? Here's the point, guys. If you're gonna disagree with me, don't let it be because you say God doesn't have that right. Because here's the thing. 
God can do whatever he wants. And whatever God does, it is righteous. Because what does the scriptures teach us? That our understanding of righteous is because God is righteous. So whatever God does is the standard for righteousness, is the standard for justice, is the standard for what is right. And be very careful to not sit in judgment over God. To judge God and say that God is wrong for this. If you disagree with me, don't say because God doesn't have the right to do that. You guys, we got to understand that he is the creator and we are his creation. And he has the right to do whatever he wants to do. Now, ultimately, we are deserving of his wrath. But we have to understand that. This is an illustration that's not unique to me, but I think it's another great illustration. As a parent, now, my daughter is, like I said, 10 months old. She doesn't really argue with me, which is good. Thank you. Uh, Right? She doesn't argue with me, but I know this, is that kids, by nature, argue with their parents. What I find amazing, and I look back, now that I'm getting older, and I look back at when I was younger, and my parents would tell me things, and I was so convinced that I was right. I'd be 10 years old, looking at somebody, looking, I'd be 10 years old, looking at somebody in their mid-30s, and, and convinced they have no idea what they're talking about. And there's that, that, that parent-child dynamic, right? That it's so easy to forget that the parent is the parent for a reason. And the child is the child for the reason. And the parent knows more than the child does. I hate to break this to you. It's just the truth. But so can, and isn't it amazing how a five-year-old can think adamantly that they're right when their parent who's 20 plus years older than them knows that they are wrong how much more the difference between me as a 29 year old and the infinite endless eternal God when I say things and he looks at me and he says you have no idea what you're talking about but thank you for his grace so we see that his, his grace, his election is unconditional, but also we see this, and this is, you know, towards the end of what we're going to do, is the, and I'm sorry this is taking a long time, but I think it's very important that I go slow through this, and I'm, I'm, there's so much more I can talk about, but I'm trying not to, right? But we see that his grace, is, his election is unconditional, but second, we see that his, his election is effectual. It accomplishes its work. There is nothing, please understand me here, guys. There is no one that God attempts to save that he fails to save. Ask yourself this. Can God do anything? Yes. Has God ever tried something and failed? No, he has not. So we have to understand that there is no one that God seeks to save that he is incapable of saving which is also something that we should not be discouraged about. We should be joyful in this, guys. Why? Because if you've responded to the call of the gospel, God will accomplish your salvation. When Jesus is on the cross and he breathes his last and he says, what, it is finished. He doesn't say it started and I hope they can keep it up. 
He doesn't say, well, I did my part. Let's see what they do. On the cross, Jesus purchased God's elect. It was done. It was finished. There was nothing that could unwrite it. There's nothing that could change it. It was done. He says it is finished. Which means that when you look at God's work in your own life, man, he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion. Jesus did not waste his blood on anybody. Everyone that he calls savingly is ultimately saved. So what do we do with this? Good question, right? Do we just sit back on our hands like, oh, well, what's the point? God's determined everything, so what's the point? No, here's the thing, guys. We talked about our burden. We talked about our confidence but second, lastly, we talk about, and this is way shorter, so don't worry, our responsibility. I want to be very clear. Romans 9, verse 30, going through the end, talks about, look, we have a responsibility to respond to the gospel. Some of you are like, well, how does that work? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know. But here's what I will tell you. The Bible is clear. God is sovereign over salvation, but you and I are accountable for what we do with the offer of the gospel that is placed before us. You are responsible. And here's what you need to know, is that God's sovereignty and our responsibility is not a contradiction, but it is a mystery. It's a mystery. Paul says this repeatedly in Scripture, that it is the great mystery of our salvation. And this is where we just look at things in the Bible and we say, I may not understand it, but I accept it as true. If you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah 55. We're going to probably go without a closing song because I went long. But it's kind of hard to not go along on this topic. This is a topic that takes, ye- that, I mean, years and years of study. The fact that I think I can perfectly explain it all in 40 minutes is ridiculous. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 8, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are, my, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. Listen to this. It shall not return to me empty. God's word will not return empty. It does not fail, Romans 9, 6 but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I want you to know that the gospel, the word of God is proclaimed to you and it will succeed in what has been sent to do. Either to draw you to repentance or to remove the excuse of ignorance. But we have a responsibility And the question is this, how have you responded to the gospel? Are you running from it? Understand something, you can run from God, but God can run longer and farther and faster than you can. 
And we talk about salvation, or we're talking about, man, it's like, I just surrender God, I, I give up. I'm, I give up trying to earn it. I give up trying to convince myself that I'm worthy of it. I accept that, God, you have done what I could never do. And, guys, this is humbling. When you ask me, why has God saved me? I'll be honest with you, I don't know. He has no reason to save me other than the fact that he's kind. He doesn't owe it to me. And he doesn't owe it to anyone in this room, but he offers it freely.